Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me this morning to the gospel according to Luke. We're going to begin reading today in chapter 10. Uh, I'll tell those who are in our summit service today uh, that we baptized so many people that my my fingers are wrinkly this morning. (laughs) And that's that's the way to preach a message, wrinkly fingers. Of course, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have the story of Jesus and his ministry uh, for three years uh, as he prepared his disciples to spread the gospel throughout the world and also live a sinless life, die a death on the cross, vicarious death, a substitutionary death, died for us, rose from the grave the third day. That's the story of the Gospels. Uh, As Jesus taught in these three years, often he would teach by telling stories. And we call these stories parables. That's a Greek word, just means to place one thing beside another thing. To to understand something that maybe is difficult to understand, you, you just place something that is easier to understand next to it. And then make the connections, and Jesus was the master teaching with parables. We would probably call them illustrations today, and I love to be able, when the Lord gives me opportunity, to preach with a story, uh, because uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus preached so often with stories. And we come today to one of his most well-known stories, one of his most well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, One of the interesting things about Christ's parables is that in almost every situation, every parable, it would provide, Jesus would provide us through the parable uh, a punch. Uh, When you read these parables and truly understand the message that Jesus is is communicating, uh, it's like a punch to the gut most of the time. Jesus is, uh, is sharing something that Sometimes it's surprising and sometimes it's very difficult to hear. In fact, I, I think if you, if you read one of Christ's parables and there's not a little bit of a, a kick to the belly, you probably didn't fully understand the message that he's communicating. And when we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan, that is absolutely true. Uh, there is a, a kick to the gut here and also a surprise. Many of his parables have a surprise in them and we'll see both of those today. Let's just jump in. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is an expert in the law. Your Bible might say lawyer, uh, which is not incorrect, but perhaps doesn't paint the most accurate picture. This expert in the law would have been someone who is an expert in the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, the Levitical law. And that was the law of the land, so in a sense, uh, he would have been an expert in the legal, civil law of the day, but he was a religious expert as well. And so he asked this question in verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is that a good question, or is that a poor question? Just think about it a moment. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, I guess in one sense, it is a good question. Uh, We're all going to die one day. Life is going to come to an end. And then what's next? 
And we need to know what's next. And we need to know how to prepare for what's next. And so in that sense, it's a very good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But I think in another sense, it's a terrible question. It's a terrible question because of two words that this uh, lawyer uses. He, he says, what must I do? That's the first problem word. And then the second problem word is inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He makes the mistake that so many people make today where they think that in order to be right with God, to have a right relationship with God, you have to do something. That there's like a list of rules. There's some requirements and you've got to fulfill the requirements. You've got to do those things on that task list and then you're become, you become a child of God. And so he asks what many people ask today, but ask wrongly, what must I do to inherit eternal life, implying that there is such a list. And then that word inherit, you would think a legal expert would know better than to phrase the question like this. You don't do anything to inherit something. If I want to inherit the fortunes of Bill Gates, what must I do to inherit those fortunes? What must I do to inherit the fortunes of some a billionaire in Saudi Arabia. What must I do? Well, I can't do anything to receive that inheritance. They will give their, uh, their fortunes to their children, right? Or their grandchildren or people that they have uh, chosen to bring into the circle of their family. You don't do something to get an inheritance. You simply receive an inheritance. And so we can see here that this legal expert right off the bat completely misunderstands what it means to be right with God or to experience eternal life because he says, what must I do? And how can that action, those tasks, those requirements lead to an inheritance? He's, he's really just all confused. And we're going to try to bring some clarity to this because Jesus brings some clarity to it as we go through, the, through this dialogue. In the very next verse, the uh, Bible says, what is written in the law? Uh, how do you read it? Those are the words of Christ. Uh, you're asking me a question. Let me ask you a question. Jesus often replied to questions with questions. And Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? You're an expert in the law. Verse 27, the legal expert replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said, verse 28, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So what's Jesus saying? Well, if you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself, if, if you can live a perfect life, if you think that there's something you can do, that's it. Live a perfect life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. If you can live a perfect life, man, then welcome in. Welcome in. Well, but this legal expert would have known that that's not possible. You know that. You've not lived a perfect life. I've not lived a perfect life. And, and so this expert in the law asks another question because he's trying to bring some clarity to this. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, the Bible says, so he's trying to figure out a way he can get in uh, to, uh, to eternal life. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So to get into heaven, you need to be perfect. Love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. And so, well, we're going to have to do some, we're going to have to do some digging, Jesus, if I'm going to get in, because that's a pretty high standard. So let's start with this. Exactly who is my neighbor? Now, there's only one reason why you'd ask that question and ask it in that way. When you ask who is your neighbor, you're trying to limit who your neighbor is, right? You're trying to, you're trying to keep that circle a little smaller. I mean, I've got to love my neighbor. Well, that's a pretty tall order. And Jesus, I wouldn't measure up to that. So let's see if we can redefine neighbor. Let's see if we can rule some people out and then it'll be a little easier. So exactly who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answers the question by giving us the parable that we're familiar with, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's read it. It begins in verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up and fled, leaving him half dead. People would travel uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem uh, to do their shopping. Uh, This wouldn't be a trip you'd take often, but once or twice a year, perhaps uh, you might go into Jerusalem to buy goods for your family or for your business or for your farm. And so if you're traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, you probably have a lot of money with you. And then when you're traveling from Jerusalem back to Jericho, you'd probably have a lot of stuff that you've bought at Target in Jerusalem. And so you've got all of this and you're headed back. Either way, you are uh, a likely target uh, for these thieves. I was in Israel about six weeks ago and something we did this time that I'd never done before is we actually went on this path. We know exactly where it is. We did it backwards. We started in Jericho and went toward Jerusalem. It's just a dirt road, uh, even to this day, winds through the desert, up and down caves. It's uh, a lot of twists and turns. You can't see very far down the road at any place. And so it would be easy for somebody to hide, for somebody to jump out, rob somebody, disappear into the into the desert. And so that's what happens. This man is uh, beaten. His, uh, whatever he has is taken from him. He's left half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now this is a made up story. Jesus picks these details all for a reason. The first man in this parable that shows up is a, is a priest. You can imagine from the perspective of the man on the side of the road bleeding and dying, he looks up and he can see coming down the road, it's a priest. He perhaps could tell from what he's wearing that it is, that it is a priest. And he must have thought, oh, what are the chances? Here I am, there's no hope for me, but here comes a priest, a priest, a man of God. He's going to help me out. But the priest comes, sees him, goes to the side, continues on. says in the next verse, in the same way a Levite, now a Levite wouldn't have been a priest, but he would have been, uh, he would have been a leader in, in the faith, in the Jewish faith, and, and actively involved in serving, and serving in a synagogue or the temple more likely. And so a Levite comes, and this would be almost as good as a priest, right? And so if... Um, If this man on the side of the road could have seen him and identified him, he would have thought, well, you know, the priest passed by. There's always one bad apple. But here's a Levite. He's going to help me. Religious man, upstanding. But it says, when he arrived at the place he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, verse 33, on his journey came up to him. 
And when he saw the man, he had compassion. Uh, This would have been completely unexpected. Jesus chose Samaritan for a reason uh, because he knew that uh, the Jews who were listening to Jesus deliver this uh, teaching, communicating this story, they hated Samaritans. They didn't trust Samaritans. Samaritans, that would be bad news to run into a Samaritan along the road. So this man beaten in the ditch and he looks up and perhaps he would have been able to identify, here comes the Samaritan. Oh no. He probably thought it was Samaritans that had beat him up to start with. And and here comes another one. What's going to happen now? But it says here that the Samaritan, the unlikely Samaritan had compassion on him. Verse 34, he went over to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. This isn't um, an ambulance uh, crew. This is just uh, a guy walking on the road. He didn't have, uh, as far as we know, the, the skills or the knowledge or the expertise. But he did what he could. He bandaged him up. And he brought him to an end. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii. That's a unit of money and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, meaning I'm going to come back and check on him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you whatever extra that, that you spend. So that's the parable. That's the, that's the message. We, we're going to look a little further, verse 36 and 37 in a moment, but let's make sure we have the parable in mind. A man is robbed. He's left for dead on the side of the road. A priest comes by, doesn't help. A Levite comes by, religious man, doesn't help. A Samaritan, uh, the scum of the earth in the minds of the Jews, Samaritan man comes by and uh, he helps him. And he helps him tremendously. He gets his hands dirty. He bandages him best he can. He takes him, even in this very... Uh, unhospitable environment in the desert. Uh, he, he takes him to an inn and he, and, and he pays for his future care and promises to come back. The Samaritan sacrificed his schedule. He sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his money uh, to provide care and even ongoing care. Now, I, I want us to go back and look at verse 30 again, right at the beginning of the parable, because I want you to notice... Uh, a couple of words there. Since Jesus took up a question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him, what does it say? Half dead. Uh, this is um, in the Greek, hemithanos. Uh, and uh, the only reason I tell you that is because you know those two words. Hemi, like hemisphere, means half of the world. The northern hemisphere would be half of the world. Hemi means half. Thanos means death. Uh, and that's a part of a lot of English words. And we think of uh, Thanatos. You might know some Greek mythology as the Greek god of death. So Hemi Thanos means half dead, but it means more than that. It means headed to death. If you're half dead, you're headed to be all dead. So here is a man half dead. He is, he is dying. Here's why this is important. This is a picture in this parable of a man who physically was half dead, but it's also a picture of a man who is spiritually half dead. Jesus 
His point is a spiritual point here. So this is true both physically and spiritually. And what I want you to see is that all around us, there are people who are half dead. Everywhere you go, whatever path you take, wherever you work, wherever you go to school, all around you, there are people who are half dead. They're half dead physically in that they're dying, right? Aren't we all dying? We're getting a little closer every day. Some of us feel it more than others. Some of us show it more than others, but, uh, but we're, all, we're all half dead physically or two-thirds or one-fourth or somewhere along the, along the line. That'll encourage you, won't it? <laughs> but also apart from Christ, we're half dead spiritually. We're really dead spiritually. We're headed to a, a hopeless eternity without Christ, eternal death all around us. Uh, This isn't something that just happens on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho 2,000 years ago. This is something that happens every day in Nacogdoches, everywhere we go. There are half-dead people everywhere. They're dying physically, they're dying spiritually, and they're without hope if somebody doesn't, doesn't respond. We walk the path from Jerusalem to Jericho every single day, and we encounter the half dead every single day. So what I want to do is start by making some some observations about the half-dead man. Uh, Since there are half-dead people around us, let's see if we can draw some connections between this man that we read of in Luke 10 and and those that are around us. The first thing I want you to see about this half-dead man is that he chose the wrong path. And so people called this in those days the bloody path. It was well known that it was a dangerous thing to travel, especially travel alone from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho to Jerusalem. You just didn't do it alone. You didn't do it at night. You always had a group of people with you. This man chose the wrong path. Now, maybe he chose the wrong path knowingly. Maybe he knew it was a dangerous path, but out of his arrogance or out of his rebellion, he just decided he would do it anyway. Or maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was new in town for some reason, and he didn't recognize the danger that would be along that path. But it doesn't matter, right? Because when you come to him in the story, he's half dead on the side of the path. It doesn't matter if he got there because he rebelled against what he knew was right, or he was ignorant of what, he, of, of what was right. He's there. The half-dead people we know, I think sometimes we're quick to judge them by saying that person should have known better. That person should have known that that's not the lifestyle you should live. That person should have known that they shouldn't have married that other person. That person should have known not to do that. And we want to back away. But listen, once they're half-dead on the side of the road, it doesn't matter that they are there because they chose it knowingly or they ended up there unknowingly, the only important piece of information is that they're there. And the truth is we've all chosen the wrong path, right? We're all guilty of sin. And were it not for the grace of God, all of us would be broken on the side of that path half dead today. The second thing I'll point out about this half dead man is that he needed somebody to care for him. So what does this man need on the side of the road? Does he need a moral lesson? Does he need somebody to stop and say, you should have known better than to come down this road this time of the day? 
You should have known better than to be by yourself. You should have known better to come here without some protection somehow. Does he need a lecture on the side of the road? No, church. Listen, he may need some moral instruction. We all need moral instruction. But what he needs most is somebody to care for him, right? That's his greatest need. He's lying there. He needs some instruction. We all need instruction. But what he first needs is somebody to care for him. Well, three men pass by, two do a very poor job of caring. One cares well. But I want us to focus on these two that didn't. And I want to show you how to care badly. Uh, Because I think if we'll learn how to care badly, then we'll know how to care well. Three things, how to care badly, that Jesus teaches us in this story. Number one, care only for those inside your circle. Care only for those inside your circle. Now, I noticed something here that you've probably noticed a long time ago if you're a student of the Bible, but I'll just be honest with you. I didn't see it until this week. I've been preaching this passage for a long, long time, but I saw something this week I've never noticed before. If you look back at the question in verse 29 that the expert in the law asked, you see it is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? We already talked about, he was trying to limit those people so he didn't have to care for people he didn't like. He didn't have to care for people that didn't believe what he believed. He didn't have to care for people that didn't vote like he voted. And so he's saying, who exactly is my neighbor? So Jesus gives the parable and then he rephrases the question. And we didn't read it while ago because I wanted to come back to it. But if you look at verse 36, Jesus is going to rephrase the question, but he's going to turn it around. And I think this is very important. Verse 36, Jesus says, which of these three do you think Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Do you see the difference? See, the legal expert was saying, who is my neighbor? And he was asking so he could limit that. But when Jesus asked the question, he says, who chose to be a neighbor to the people, uh, to the person uh, that they encountered on the side of the road? You see, we're not supposed to ask who is our neighbor because when you ask that question, you're trying to decide, yeah, I'm going to help this person, but I'm not going to help that person. I'm going to help these kind of people, but I'm not going to help those kind of people. These people over here, they're my neighbor, but the other people are not my neighbor. No, don't ask who is my neighbor. Ask it the way Jesus asked it. Who can I be a neighbor to? To whom can I be a neighbor? What is the answer to that question? You can be a neighbor to anybody on your path. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't don't try to limit this by asking who is my neighbor and who is not my neighbor. No, you be the neighbor and then just ask who can you be neighborly to? Who can you love and care for? It's a complete turnaround. And though it uses the same words, it's a completely different question. Who can we be a neighbor to? The problem is people who care badly care only for those inside their circle, inside their circle. The Samaritan decided, I will be a neighbor to whoever is along my path. Whoever is along my path. Now, what does that mean for us? That means as Christians, every encounter is a divine appointment. Every time you meet somebody, it's because God put somebody in your path for you to be a neighbor to that person. 
Don't ask, is that person my neighbor? Does somebody that looks like that? Is that person my neighbor? Somebody that lives over there? Is that person my neighbor? Somebody that votes like that? Is that person my neighbor? Somebody who believes like that? Is that person my neighbor? No, quit asking who is your neighbor. You're the neighbor. You're the neighbor. And so what does this mean for us? Every person we encounter, it's a divine appointment. There are no accidental encounters in the life of a Christian. And we need to love and care for every person God puts on our path. I'm afraid that it's true of me and you, me, me and you, that there are people on our path, we've drawn a circle that we call our neighborhood, and we have put those people outside our circle. Jesus says, no, you're the neighbor. If they're on your path, I've put them there for you to care for. Now, that doesn't mean we share the four spiritual laws with every person that we encounter, that we uh, preach uh, the entire book of Romans to, uh, to every person that we bump into at the grocery store. We need to be sensitive to their needs, but we can care for them, care for them. Now, what does it mean for our church? The Lord planted this church in this city. I know that seems obvious, but just think about it a moment. The Lord planted this church in this city. Why? To reach these people. I love um, the old quote from Keith Green. You may not know who that is, singer a long time ago. But he said something that... uh, I don't even know if I was alive when he said it, but I, uh, I've read it and it stuck with me. This generation of Christians is responsible for reaching this generation of souls on the earth. Now for us, this generation of First Baptist Church Nacogdoches people, this generation is responsible for reaching this generation of people in Nacogdoches County. Church, we may have to do some hard things. We may have to get outside our comfort zone. Uh, We may have to risk failing from time to time. We've got to be willing to make changes because we must care for the half-dead people in Nacogdoches. So that's the first way to care badly. Care only for those inside your circle. Number two, care generally but not specifically. Now, uh, just take a moment, and I'm out of time, but, but, but let me point this out. The priest and the Levite, do you really think they were uncaring people? No. I imagine if you asked their wives, their wives would have said they're very caring, generous people. If you'd have asked their friends, if you'd have asked people in the temple or the synagogue, they would have said, no, those are upstanding men. They're very caring. They're very caring. What if you'd have asked them? What if you'd have stopped the priest? Man on the street interview, you care for people? What do you think he would have said? I care for people. You care for hurting people. I care for hurting people. Do you love people? I love people. Certainly they would have said that. These are upstanding men with great reputations. Jesus chose priests and Levite for a reason. So what was their problem? They were caring generally. They weren't caring specifically. See, there's too much Christians, too much of this situation where Christians, we carry, we care generally. I care for the world. I care for Nacogdoches. But we don't care for the specific person in front of us that's hurting. 
We don't care for the person at work that's hard to get along with and nobody wants to be friends with, but we don't care for that person. But we tell ourselves, I care. I'm a loving person. We don't care for the person that we see on the side of the road. We don't care for the person in the class that nobody else is talking to. We don't care for the person going through a messy life situation and crisis. No, we care generally. But real love and care is always specific. Always specific. You ever seen that trick where a person will lie on a bed of nails? Uh, they'll, they'll take a nail that's sharp. They stick a thousand of them up through a board. And they'll take one of those nails to show you how sharp it is. And they'll poke it through a piece of leather or something. And, and it is razor sharp. And then they put a thousand of these nails on a board and somebody will get on it and lay down. And you're just like, wow, how does, that's amazing. Now, how is that? Well, if there were just one nail and that person would have put all of his weight on that one nail, it would have punctured right through him, right? But when you spread it out to a thousand nails, it's not much on each nail and it doesn't puncture the skin. See, what we're doing as Christians, we make ourselves feel better sometimes by spreading our love out to a thousand people, which means we don't really love any person. No, we need to prick one person's life. We need this week for a real person with a real name. We need to love on that person. The way to care badly is to care generally, but not specifically. Number three, more quickly, to care with your heart, but not your schedule. And this is a lot the same. We care in our heart. My heart hurts for people who are hurting. But you can't care for somebody with your heart. How do you care for people? You interrupt your schedule. How do you care for people? You interrupt your money. You interrupt your finances. You interrupt your future. I'm sure that this, I'm sure when the priest went by, he didn't stop because he was busy. I'm sure when the Levite went by, he didn't stop because he had somewhere to be. But the Samaritan would have been just as busy and had just as many demands on him. But he cared. He interrupted his life. How many times do we don't, we, we, we don't stop and interrupt our lives, but we excuse it by saying, I care with my heart. Quit caring with your heart. Start caring with your interruption, with your time, your finances. The Lord's blessed our church. We have a long history and heritage of being a church that cares for our community, that gets out and shares the gospel and through so many different ministries. But listen, church, this isn't something that we can just lean on the past. This is something we've got to renew every year. This is something we have to renew every week, every day. Church, we, today's church, we're responsible for caring for and reaching Today's residents of Nacogdoches, let us be faithful not to just look to our past or tell the stories of, of successes in days gone by, but let us find people half dead on the side of the road in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. And let's care for those people with our schedule and with our money and with our, with our time. Let's care for people. Now, let me show you one more thing. I know. Uh, send me a letter. Um, I'm on vacation this next week, so make sure you send it soon. So it'll come. Somebody else will hand it. Tom, Tom's taking my mail this week. Um, I'm not kidding. 
I don't want to know, Tom. I don't want to know. <laughs> Let me show you one more thing, because this is too beautiful to skip. Jesus chose a Samaritan. I was going to take the time to tell you why they hated Samaritans so much, but just trust me on it. Jesus chose a Samaritan because a Samaritan was so unlike them. just seemed like it was a foreigner. Lived close by, but a foreigner in their minds. Why do you think Jesus chose a Samaritan? I think there are a lot of reasons. But I think one of them is just, just plain, it was unlikely. Of all the people to stop, a Samaritan. So unlikely. But you know, there was another unlikely person that stopped. You know who it was? Jesus. See, every one of us half did. Physically, spiritually. But Jesus, the most unlikely neighbor. I don't know why I'm in Jesus' circle. I'm not in Jesus' neighborhood. I'm not. My lifestyle doesn't match Jesus' lifestyle. But Jesus decided to be a neighbor to me. And Jesus did for me everything this Samaritan did for the man broken on the side of the road. I wrote down a list. Jesus saw my brokenness and my sin and my hopelessness, and he stopped and he had compassion on me. Jesus demonstrated God's love for me that while we were still sinners, while I was still a sinner and couldn't do anything for the Lord, Christ died for me. Jesus brought an end to racism and reconciles us to God and to each other. Jesus paid the cost for our salvation, picked me up, paid for my salvation with his own blood. And Jesus said, I'll come back. The broken, dying man on the side of the road, that was me. The unlikely savior was Christ. We need to learn to be caring, but let me say to everybody here, if you've never been rescued by Christ for your sins, it must start there. Apart from Christ, you'll die on the side of the road. Might be, might be 50 years from now, but you will. And it won't just be a physical death, it'll be a spiritual death. There's nothing you can do to pick yourself up, clean yourself off, and make yourself whole again. There are no people walking down that path that can help you, except for one. It's Jesus. And he extends his hand, and he says, you take it. I'll bandage you up. I'll heal your body. I'll save your soul, forgive your sins by my shed blood, and I will take you to be forever with me. Head bowed, eyes closed. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope today will be that day for you. I hope you'll see yourself half dead on the side of the road. You'll see Jesus extending his hand. You're hopeless except for what Christ has done. We're hopeless except for what Christ has done. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that Jesus stopped and took notice of me, reached out his hand, and rescued me. 
Father, my prayer is that you do that, that you lead us to respond to you doing that for every person. Here's my voice today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.